Welcome to Alchemist X Innovators Inside, the podcast where we explore the world of corporate innovation and dive deep into the minds of thought leaders, high achievers, and risk takers. I'm your host, Ian Bergman, and together we'll uncover the challenges, triumphs, and secrets behind successful innovation journeys. Whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, an industry veteran, or simply curious about the ever-evolving landscape of innovative ideas and what it takes to put them into practice, this is the podcast for you. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's embark on this exciting journey together. Bianca, good evening. Hello. I am sitting here. It is noon on a Friday, and I'm realizing I am talking to somebody where? In Germany, in Frankfurt, Germany. Amazing. Well, I am so pleased to welcome Bianca Pretorius to the podcast. And I am so thankful, Bianca, that you're joining us on a Friday evening, your time. Honestly, there's really nowhere else you'd rather be. Is that right? Nowhere else I'd rather be. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us. So I'm going to let her introduce herself. But Bianca has a history with Alchemist that is absolutely wonderful. Inspirational guide and coach for so many of our founders who are looking to convey their innovation, convey their passion, convey what they are doing in the world, the problems they're solving. But Bianca, your background is not just this sort of coaching. Do you mind uh, telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you ended up in this world where you work with not just tech startups, but innovation generally? Yes, sweet. I'd love to tell that story. So I start my life as somewhere completely different than startups and innovation. So in my early 20s, I really wanted to become an actress and like studied acting and theater and thought like the arts is where I want to spend my life. And then after a couple of years of really not getting through every audition, like I've rehearsed I could possibly try to do, I failed a lot and realized, oh, okay, let's study that. But it's not really the most interesting part to be. And then this was 2011, so like more than 12 years ago, and I was in Berlin, Germany. And this was a really hot time because it was just four years after the iPhone came to the market. And so the first few tech startups entered the uh, the scene. And Sure. Yes. And I saw lots of pitches of founders, and they were really, really bad. <laughs> so you had... You had all these tech people and I'm an actress trained if you want to, but I've never really worked as an actress, but I'm coming from this family. Everybody around me is like an engineer or a programmer or like, so I grew up with lots of love for tech, but then I saw these founders pitching their technical company ideas and nobody understood what the hell they were doing. And so I felt like, mm, this is so interesting, but sadly nobody understands what they're talking about because they're mumbling and the way that they frame it, nobody listened. And then of course, if you are at this, like at a dinner where entrepreneurs um, uh, show themselves, nobody would tell them, hey, sweetheart, I didn't understand what you said. Um, they would just like clap and smile. And so I went over 20 something year old just finish my acting studies and be like, hmm, would you like that I show you how to do this a little bit better? And more of a joke, I did that. And then 
it was the most fun experience of my life. And then this founder was like super happy about it and then recommended me, recommended me. And like a few months later, I was like the startup pitch coach of Berlin. And this was many years ago. <laughs> Funny how you, you just kind of stumble into these things sometimes, huh? Absolutely. It's like a made up, like startup pitch coach was like, it was a made up profession that for the lack of a better word, we created. And then I did this for like many, many accelerators and incubators and company builders and all these sorts of things. And always started with like the voice, the presence, the storytelling part of it. But then a startup pitch is a very specific kind of setting. You have like three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. You have to cover like the market and the innovation angle and the technology and the business model and the team. And all of this needs to convey the potential investor that this makes sense, but it's not really advertisement. So you can't be just like a sparkling pitch. It has to be super precise and on point and highlighting the right points. Sure. And so that's that became like my fetish. So the last 10 years, uh, as my main kind of thing, I do independently these startup pitch coachings in Europe and the US and in the Arab world and have been lucky to like bend my time with ag tech, fintech, femtech, medtech, prop tech, whatever tech this happens to, to help these five minutes. And so that's my main thing but that's not all i do would you like to hear more yeah well i do want to hear more i want to come back to this notion of not just like nerding out on all of these different sectors mm -hmm. but this notion of honesty right honesty with people who are presenting their ideas i want to come back to that in a bit so i'm kind of putting a flag down there but let's hear about what else you do because it ain't it ain't just pitch coaching no it's not i mean it's my like bloodline of what i do and where i get most of my inspiration from but like if you see all these different industries and verticals what happens in the next i mean when do we start a pitch in the beginning of their career? So you always have a glimpse of what happens in the ag tech industry the next five years, what happens in the medic medical industry in the next five years. So you always get this idea of what's happening in the near future, because what kind of companies with doing what sort of innovation get funded or not. And that kind of creates this whole map of my inner world to understand the world. And then I looked into politics. And German politics is as... Ooh, politics. You just jumped from innovation in the future to politics. Well, I think it's the same thing. Here's why. Because in a way, founders want to solve a problem because they want to impact the world. They want to kind of fix the world. And the system, this what they're using for that is companies and technology. Sure. And this whole thing of democracy and putting laws and creating uh, societies and shaping societies is kind of also trying to make it better than it is now. But the tools are way slower and way not sophisticated with like, I don't know, people and democracy. So I think it's both if you enter that field of politics or of entrepreneurship, it's because you really want to shape stuff. Yeah. So when I started my life, I'd wanted to become an artist doing theater because in my head, I thought art can change the world and uh, like film and theaters could like shape societies. Turns out not really, <laughs> but it's the same kind of impulse that you want to shape stuff. And so looking at politics, it was so different and so kind of felt like stuck in the past, dusty and not really anywhere close to where we currently are in the present. And then 
meeting all these entrepreneurs every day doing like their, we want to like uh, disrupt this industry of doing XYZ, really creating innovation. I thought like, hmm, how would we, can we form a political party pretending it would be invented and designed in the year 2017, which was when I first found my first political party. And so we reinvented like an agile technology first platform for creating a political party and then we ran for the parliament and that was so many learnings and so many when we talk about how hard innovation is very 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 hard okay this is just awesome right because how many people can tell this story in the world not so many but you know i want to i want to dig on this this conversation about how hard innovation is right a lot of the conversations on this podcast are you know circle around this idea that we've got an idea we've got a vision i've got something in my head for the future but Getting there is hard. Getting there in the context of a large organization or a social ecosystem may be even harder. So innovation in politics, incredibly hard. One of the things that we talk about a lot is that one ingredient, a necessary ingredient for innovation, it's not just the idea, right? It's not just the solution or the problem. Like it's action. So you took that action. Like you took that first step, you actually did something you could learn from. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like, where you ran into roadblocks and yeah, what did you learn along the way? So what great was how many people agree on the problem. So when you started and pitched this idea about this would be like the design of a new political party that would be more agile and more grassroots and more whatever, people are like, yes, 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 because everybody feels that it's kind of stuck. But then going forward on like how to implement that and then how to agree on things. This is where it gets difficult because then people are stuck on opinions and feel like, but we have to have that conversation. And in entrepreneurship and building a company, at least you can test stuff and then can see, does it work or does it not work? Does the technology exist? Does it fly or does it not fly? Uh, does the market want it? And so you can't really do that with politics because then you can't just throw money at it because then it kind of has this smell of that's not what you can do with democracy. So I guess the difficulty for us was to create something as fast that people understand there's a new political party with, again, like every startup, limited budget and the weight of you can't just try out your thing. People have an opinion about what you do very fast because you're dealing with something that affects them, which is their political system. And so the kind of uh, counter waves are much stronger as well when you start do a startup that nobody believes in. People are like, whatever, go waste your life. But if you do something that affects them, then they're like starting to really argue with you, fight you. And that's something that you have battle against it. Plus, obviously, it doesn't have a business model. And so that's something that will make the growth much more difficult. But it's fun because it does not not touch people. It does not not touch people. <laughs> yeah. In terms of like, they don't go like, yeah, democracy, I don't care. Nobody says that because it involves them. But yeah. Well, that that's true. And that really matters. Well, and, and it's interesting because I hear some things that you're saying, right? Everybody agrees on the problem. Mm -hmm. But when you get into the solution, it gets hard. I mean, there's so many parallels to a startup telling its journey, like what does a startup need? Like a startup needs people to lean in, get excited, feel the emotion around the problem, be like, I get that, I feel it, or I sure know somebody who does, tell me more, right? So like you get that parallel, but then as you say, okay, so you get to the solution, it's maybe a little more challenging. And kind of tying back to 
your origin story here, right? Where you felt like maybe there were founders out there who weren't getting honest feedback, mm. who really were just getting disengagement. It sounds like you got a fair bit of feedback. Like what were people telling you as they were disagreeing with you? Most of them said, you have the wrong idea. You from startup world, this is not how democracy works. So the current system works and you cannot just create another party. We have to work with the ones that we have. So some of them got really angry that I dared like put in a new thing in there because they were part of like, it's like the old and the new economy, just like it's much more weight, emotional, like gravity to it. You don't understand how this works. Cars need oil to drive like they're going. You don't understand, you know, how this works. Uh, you know, what what should I come up with, right? Yeah. We need secretaries to take our notes and send them to people because, you know, it's <laughs> difficult to dictate your own items. That really feels like a really classic pushback against yeah. obvious societal change. That and then the one thing that is like the market barrier in political party innovation is so I mean in the US you have two parties more or less in, in Europe often you're like three four five six so a little bit uh, many more but still you have a five percent threshold until you can be part of the parliament at all. And those 5% are very difficult to get because you have to, I, I can put lots of marketing into like advertisement in Instagram ads, but people can't just like put and click and buy. They have to actually remember that bit, yeah. go to the ballot, have a piece of paper, and they go to the very bottom and click slash vote for this new party. And that's a much more counterintuitive kind of thing to do and harder to convert <laughs> people that are interested into something to like actually voting slash buying it. So just the process of casting a vote in a ballot is so much more harder to hack than having them click on something and buy uh, digitally. That's right. And so mixing that with a 5% threshold, we had so much press and people loved us. But in the end, we'd had like 0.5%, which is hundreds of thousands of people, but not enough. Yeah. And to your point that the business model is a little different. When you have a consumer tech startup with hundreds of thousands of people, you're making, you're making progress. Yeah. It is interesting though. Like, Fundamentally, innovation, you know, demands behavior change. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And behavior change is a hard barrier to burst through, especially when there's so many people between you and the person mm. changing behavior. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. But it comes, I can offer like a thread to where this, these things are like kind of in common. So behavior change only starts when there's like different narrative in your mind, when you kind of find something sexy that you didn't like beforehand. And so to finish that politics story is like, I tried that one, twice building a party, then a pan-European party, and then ran for like um, a seat at the European Parliament on all sorts of things. And then I, none of this worked because all of them bounced against that threshold of percentage. And then I felt, okay, if I can't do it entrepreneurially by building something new that invades the current system, I have to then enter the current system and do like intrapreneurship. And so I, uh, I joined the Conservative Party in Germany and built like an inside think tank where we used communication and narrative to create a conservative kind of framing for how can climate policy, which it was always about doing better climate politics, into a conservative mind so that you don't always have this like, yes for climate, no for climate, because that doesn't get the society anywhere. And so because democracy is a tricky system that had to create accelerated change that we would need in order to like um, hit the sustainability goals, that's what in the end worked a little better than the entrepreneurial approach. 
uh, from the outside. The entrepreneurial. Well, I, okay, that's really fascinating. And there's so many parallels I want to draw to large private enterprises, right? I mean, you know, calling back to your first story, like the exciting world of tech startups, a lot of us get really wrapped it up in this. And we we think all innovation is going to come from mm-hmm. outside, from startups. And 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 I kind of, let's be clear. I still believe that. I still, but I'm wrapped up in that story very much. It actually honestly does. <laughs> and not just because we're both in the industry. But but this is a really interesting point to kind of zero in on, I think, is that the patterns and practices that power mm. startup sourced innovation can be applied within an organization. You can identify a problem statement. You can drive change through action and maybe new solutions. So I don't know. In my head, I feel like I'm drawing some parallels between maybe some of how you were able to change the narrative in the conservative party and the conservative party platform and what, you know, insert any multinational corporation here might need to be thinking, how do I participate in innovation without getting disrupted? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there are those in the party who would say the party is better positioned to stay relevant over the long term and to stay competitive over the long term because of that entrepreneurial work? Just like every big corporation, there's always even camps within the organization. So they're the really progressive, innovative ones inside the big tank. And then the ones who are like really happy and they kind of have a like a drawn to like, no, let's go back a few steps to the older days. It, it worked before. Let's figure out how we go back to that success of that point. So I think there are massive parallels of big old corporations and big old political parties because they have the same... They have people inside that that evolved within that part and have emotions to the success stories and have also narratives in their mind and belief sentences of why it worked. And so what was your question again? I don't even remember. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, it was um, like, with, you know, within, within the party, innovation often is uh, to stay competitive, to stay relevant, to stay with and ahead of the times. So how is that sort of kind of coming through in the conservative yes. party? Yeah. So I would say, so there's camps that say, no, if we're going into innovation, then we're basically look like the copycat of the, in this part, the greens mm-hmm. are like, so we, we have to go the other angle because then otherwise we lose our USP and they exactly use the same words. Fascinating. And so as an, a, a big corporation, I mean, think about the whole German car industries when Tesla once hit, like hit the market, met like big, big corporations are doing cars for for like decades. We're like, this electric thing, we're never going to do it. No, 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 no. We're going to be like the combustion engine. And then years after like, okay, maybe, maybe not. And then also they're, they're now doing electric cars. And these years of not doing it was like a waste of money for them. And like, really, they lost their position in the market. Um, And that's really tough on them right now. And I would say, I am pretty sure the positioning on, should we do have a uh, statement on climate policies? To me, it's like inevitable because it is about to come. This is not going to go anywhere. So you'd rather find your position in that narrative and the the landscape of storytelling pieces that you could choose. You'd rather find it today than tomorrow because there is no possibility that it will go away. I'm pretty sure of that. But some people 
inside the body aren't. Of course. And so we have to wait for the market to decide. And the market is elections and, and voting. So, yeah. So. I mean, honestly, that's just utterly fascinating because this this is, to your point, this is the fabric of society. This is how people interact, determine like the collective path forward. I think that's utterly fascinating. And I think it's really interesting to draw these analogies to what happens in the private markets. And automotive is fascinating because you said something, you know, there's a reaction. A reactionary is a dangerous word to use here because it's political. It's not, I don't mean it in that term, but there is this kind of reactionary element mm-hmm. Where we're like, no, like if our competitors are saying X, we have to go the complete other direction. Yeah. Right. And to your point, I would hypothesize we kind of saw that in the German car industry, right? Volkswagen had a rough few years for a bunch of reasons because they went a completely different direction in climate tech that actually kind of bit them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we're talking about Dieselgate. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the kind of strategic decision making there, but your point that you run the risk when you know that change is happening in the world around you of saying, okay, we're not that, so we have to go the complete other direction can really steer you in the wrong direction. It can, it can kill companies. Yeah. Whoever well, basically is first of um, identifying this change and going after it kind of owns the story. So the Greens kind of went first and owned the story. And so anybody else on the market of opinions feels now that they're like just saying what the others are saying. And in democracy, nobody wants to do that. So the whole USP point of the rough years of, uh, of Volkswagen and of other German car um, yeah, manufacturers is exactly the same thing. So I think there's massive values in like, okay, let's be then more deep into storytelling. Can we follow the same point, but have different narratives, different storytelling bits that it feels like USP, but doesn't actually questions the existence of climate change and questions that we kind of have to do. Does it actually question reality? Exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, you could have the same conversation about the embracing of AI or not, the embracing of like accelerating technologies. There's so many big things that are happening where all of us in innovation would say like, this is going to come like decentralized uh, internet and decentralized, like, yeah. not maybe cryptocurrencies, but something decentralized is going to be it's happening full stop. No, it's 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 happening. Exactly. Like it is inevitable. The only argument is how fast. Exactly. And so we are kind of sure of that. So I'm like stunned at how nothing sometimes happens or like very niche. Those are niche points in politics. And that's really just like amazes me and in a sad way. It amazes me in a sad way. Um that this that's not obvious to everyone. Me too. Oh, please tell me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do think there is kind of an explanatory factor here. I'm curious for your thoughts on this because this intersects with tech and politics. The world is just changing faster and faster. I think that's a given as in the the externalities that you have to react to, pay attention to, often technology driven, right? They are coming faster and faster. It's no longer human generations. It's, you know, inside of months. I think AI is a good example so many of us are kind of blasé about things like chat GPT or mid-journey generative image, et cetera, that we forget that we weren't even talking about it collectively a year and a half ago, that we forget that a year ago, right, mid-journey and other generative art were creating these deranged stick figures that were cool, but now they're creating things I can hang up on my wall and frame and they look like masterworks. And that was a year. So the pace of change and 
it's hard, like society doesn't move that fast. Society hasn't figured out how to deal with the fact that information can travel instantaneously without any form of authentication and validation as to what's true, right? Society hasn't dealt with, insert thing here. So I'm curious for your thoughts on, I understand and share your sort of frustration at how slow it is to adopt these things, how long the conversation takes. But I am kind of curious for your thoughts on, is that just going to continue because humans have to process humans have to process these implications and that takes time and we have to do it collectively and the world around us is changing so fast. Oh my God, that's the hardest question that you could ever ask because will the human, will we be able to process faster? No, unless, I don't know. I don't know how fast Neuralink is going to be. Neuralink? Uh, like I was on a I was on a panel the other day when I got asked when the singularity is coming. So, you know. Yeah. But I doubt it. it's not going to be a mass thing very soon. Right. But the acceleration will be very soon having a mass impact. So this question is the center question that you just asked. And I'm not very, very optimistic about it because just the pure fact of technology and climate change Both is accelerating. Mm -hmm. And those are not side facts. Those are central facts. Yeah. Uh, central pieces. And humans cannot evolve as fast. So doesn't democracy. And so I have no positive, like, let's just do that. And then it's going to be flipped. So I wish I had a really smart thing to say it to that, but I don't. You know, I don't either. And I wasn't expecting it. I keep falling back on tropes. But what's a trope? Oh, like I, I don't even know. I now have to now I have to defend my native language. Um, like, <laughs> did I even use the right word? But like, sort of common sayings that don't necessarily mean anything. But things like, yeah, we have to figure it out together. Yeah, right. Which is both inane, yeah. but also kind of true. Yeah, right. We as the collective humanity, and we're seeing this in writer strikes in Hollywood, and which and. Mm -hmm. You know, business models are changing, technological capabilities are changing. Like it feels like these hits are just going to keep coming and incorporating the awareness of that in our collective societal and organizational thinking, and then incorporating the structures to kind of like make real decisions mm -hmm. at a real pace feels like something we have to figure out. The other night, like a week ago or something, I have two small kids, so I'm spending a lot of nights at home on the sofa and I was watching Armageddon last week it's like this film from the 90s where like there's a i remember it well i'm dating myself but i know it well you, you remember right yeah but they had the center scene where i'm like something like this needs to happen where like in this moment like all the world every country is like had suddenly this outside threat where they're all like combined like okay we're the same to this like thing that comes to earth and so i was like wishing for like can somebody really well create maybe a fake but an alien landing something that kind of unites us a little bit of bigger like but fast thread so that we wake up for the moment okay let's like forget all foreign policies kind of divides and who like what gets what market to figure out like, a common strategy on how to deal with different technologies and climate crisis and 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 I doubt that this is going to happen but this is the I saw this picture of this Armageddon scene and was like yep that's the kind of thing we need to be united. It is. As cliche and cheesy it sounds. It is so cliche and so cheesy. And yet there is something very real to the idea that we are creating by ourselves enough change in the world around us that we actually kind of have to unite against it. I have to think about that. 
Okay. Tell me when you have a uh, have a solution. I'm like, call me up. Be like, I know it now. I will. <laughs> okay, we're getting metaphorical, metaphysical, and kind of like futurist here. But we're gonna come yes, back. Yes, when, sorry. When we Absolutely. no, we're gonna come back when we solve these problems, uh, and we'll <laughs> we'll update the audience because they yeah. they want to know. But okay, so you have had this thread of innovation, applying it effectively throughout your career. I want to talk about a little more about what you're doing now. And and by the way, you said you had young kids. I've got young kids myself. They are, boy, are they a distraction from work in the best possible way, but you know, they make thinking about this hard. So tell us about what you're doing now. Are you taking a break from trying to drive innovation? Are you doing something else? Sometimes I wonder if I should, but my kids are eight months and uh, two years and I kind of never took a work. So I did the, actually the alchemist uh, cohorts were like the first ones after I first had my kid. And so there's plenty of pitch coaching I did with breastfeeding my son here and then like explaining this pitch over there. So these are really historical moments in my entrepreneurial and mother's life. Amazing. Uh, so this kind of really works together well and the pandemic really helped there because yeah, you can work from home on that point. So what I'm doing at the moment, so it kind of, there was this chapter, like this pitch coaching has always been like the center bloodline, I would say. It's it, like, it's kind of what I do. It's what, I, um, what I'm good at. It's what I like as well. And then the political part is really like a bulky hobby. So none of this has a business model, but I cannot not do it. It, it drives me. And now in that world of always meeting entrepreneurs, always meeting politicians, I came to, to like the observation that as a woman, so there's a thing that if you have successful women, whether they're like CEOs, even in the corporate sector or uh, in startups, or they're visible politicians, or they're even like uh, Olympic sports athletes, if, they, if you're female, then there's a big likelihood that you might be involuntarily single. Because it's very hard if you talk about like monogamy and one relationship, maybe getting married, having kids. It seems to be a little bit tough to be the man next to the woman that is so like ambitious and successful because it might flip the gender roles. And so if sure. as long as the, the man is like much more successful, it's not a problem. But as soon as there's a scientific term for that, so I'm not making this up. The scientific term is um, a female success penalty. And so there's a social penalty coming with too much uh, female success. And so I've seen that for many years and then having two kids, being happily married, I was like, this cannot stay like that. I do not accept that all these amazing women around me like create this big change, like shape the world, shape policies, build companies, build CEOs. But then as a punishment, they get taken away the center thing of life that you want, which is love and a family and somebody that you can sleep next to. Yeah. That made me so furious. And that's why I thought, okay, I want to build a company that, that falls in love with that problem to solve it, whatever it takes. And so the first thing that I'm building at the moment is, is a female curated dating space. So it's a dating app that is invite only for men. And so it's trying to get uh, these precious men because I really like men and I've met so many. I'm married to one. I've met wonderful men. But they're not the major majority. They're a little bit the minority. So it gets to like cherry pick those men that have already been reflected beyond gender roles to, to know that it doesn't affect their male identity if their partner is like really uh, rocking it. The fire of an entrepreneur is, you know, looking the camera in the eye and saying, this cannot stand, right? Which, yeah. which I just saw. 
So how's it going? Like, where, where are you in the process? Because you are, you're in a technology supported dating. I, I'm dating myself here uh, by <laughs> saying that I think it mostly has, has kind of after it would have been useful to me, but boy, is that a thing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's a market there. So what are you doing and how's it going? So this is really early process because how did this come to me? I didn't like wake up and be like, oh, I, ha I have so much space in my life. Let me create another thing. But a year ago, so I was already six months pregnant and I more like for fun, just like these things happen for fun. I posted on LinkedIn. I posted like, hmm, somebody should create a matchmaking agency, like for all these ambitious, bold women meeting men. I, I said in German, what would translate to men who aren't. <laughs> That's basically what I said. And it went viral, had half a million views, and I got press all over the German-speaking region and like hundreds of people reaching out like, I want to invest in this. When are you launching? Can you do this? Wow. And then I felt like, mm, I'm six months pregnant. I didn't really start like plan to do that. But if I don't act on that now, I will my whole my life will wonder what would have happened if. And so I decided, okay, let's, let's start that. And then uh, during the end of my pregnancy and then also by having my, my daughter born, I was, I'm creating this company. So basically it's, um, so right now we're in the, uh, we have finished prototype, we have the first user testings, I have the first conversation with angel investors. I'm still looking for a team. So I haven't yet started really to look into a co-founder. So if somebody listens, they'll be like, oh my God, this is the problem I want to solve for the next decade. Uh, hit me up. And so it- You heard that, hit her up. <laughs> so by looking in the dating space, so not only is there this problem of this, I mean, frankly, it's a supply and demand question. So there's plenty of amazing women and they would all argue there aren't enough men out there. My head says, I see that point. My heart strongly disagrees because I think all these men exist, but they're not centralized. It's a character trait that you are, if you are at peace with yourself as a man, and if you don't think of like competing with your partner, then you wouldn't be feeling threatened by that. And so you won't find all these men in like, I don't know, the, the industry of X, you would find them decentralized everywhere. So somebody's cousin, somebody's brother, somebody's, it's just a human trait that exists. And so this is why it's going to be an invite only space for men. And we're going to market this only to women. So single women and women that know men. So every man on this platform will be vouched by a woman. So the first thing that you see, basically, when you see their profile is like a 40 seconds audio file from a woman saying why she trusts him. And that primes the whole perception of who is this guy I'm talking to very, very uh, strongly. And then creating a dating app, of course, I was looking into the dating app space and the, the main almost funny thing is before dating apps existed, dating apps didn't exist, right? So whoever created the first dating app kind of made up the design and then the rest followed. This was in a time where e-commerce just like happened. So for some reason, the way we meet humans online is very close to how I would choose a new t-shirt. Very transactional. Very transactional, very like... Like swiping. Here's my profile. Here's what I am. Do you like me or not? It's no correlation of how you would actually encounter a human being or like build emotional relationship with them at all. It has nothing to do with real life. Plus, obviously, 
Tinder and others weren't ever designed to put people in relationship, but to have people sticky on, like to create the stickiness of the app. Sure. Because it's really amazing for my dopamine level to be like, next, 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 swipe, swipe. Because then in my pocket, whomever I'm dating at the moment, in my pocket, there's the potential of the better match. And that is very, very sexy and very like my brain likes that. But my heart and my human doesn't. But also dangerous. Very dangerous. Yeah. We have as many dating apps in this world, like uh, the most dating is ever, but the most lonely people ever. So that kind of doesn't make any sense if you think about it. And so, I mean, there's many things to fix, but one of the things that we're planning to fix is something uh, I call audio first dating. So you basically, uh, where you wouldn't look at profiles and read stuff, but you would listen to specific, like kind of deepish questions that people answered in their profile. So you first listen to this wing woman telling why she trusts this man. And then you would hear his voice and listen to answers he's giving to questions. So we'd listen to what he says and you would see a picture and a few pictures, but a little bit blurred. And the more you listen to him, the more the pictures unblur themselves so that it kind of counteracts your dopamine game of like do i like his nose next do i like her hair next so that's also something that we're trying to fix like how do we meet and encounter humans in the digital space okay this is well thought through and super cool and i'm i'm not ashamed to admit that i've seen a few episodes of love it is blind and that's a very obviously different thing i'm not going to go there but it's yeah. it, like the parallels right the hunger of people to actually get to know the person without the superficial without the swipe yeah. without the picture with a little bit so that you know kind of like this is a person like uh, but that you see is this my type or you don't see like the exact expression in their eyes because this is the interface that often we see a face and we think ah this is that kind of a guy i don't like him or her because of x but this is only projection has nothing to do with the actual human behind it so to kind of trick yourself into not falling into those patterns this is why we try to like pace it with this blurriness and force you to audio first, but then of course also visual. So that's the two kind of things we're doing. This, I mean, this is really cool. And I, we, Bianca and her imaginary team. Her, the we, uh, the royal we. I wasn't, I wasn't going to say anything about the voices in your head. No. Yeah. This is, this is really cool. And I, I wish you luck. And genuinely, as a, as a man who's married to a startup CEO like mm. wife, and like, this is the sort of thing where I can, you know, imagine that at a prior time in my life, I very much, wish that this would have existed. Like it's, it, it sounds wonderful. So I wish you a ton of luck there. I have one question that's really important for any startup founder and it's, it's the why now is something happening in technology or society? What makes now the right time for this? I think it couldn't be more obvious from my female perspective. For example, I think latest with this moment of Barbie being like the one blockbuster. What did Barbie do? It was the first film that had a mainstream success with under like with explaining the mechanism of, of patriarchy, which is a very like intellectual concept a couple of years ago. So when I was 15, feminism was like women that don't shave their legs and really something like an uglyish word. Now you have Beyonce doing her full like global touring with like a big blockbuster feminism thing inside. So something has changed to get female empowerment and feminism into mainstream pop culture. 
And that mainstream pop culture, of course, has already an impact. So it's way more normal and cooler and the normal thing to be for a woman to be independent, have her finances under control, doing her own thing, having her own life. And this kind of evolving has an impact of relationships because they didn't really change. They didn't have this evolution. Yep. And the male men's role didn't also have that evolution, which is like saying this with all compassion. It's I don't think it's easy in 2023 to be a man. It's I think it's pretty hard to know like what can I do and what can I not do. So I guess that's the moment why society screams for that because what it means to be a woman has much evolved and being a woman to the better because now can, we can be the, ourselves finally. And now we kind of need the men to step up their game to be okay with that. Yeah. Well, amazing. So I wish you a ton of luck. This is really, really cool. And I think it's a natural evolution of, frankly, the career path you've described. You're at the intersection of technology and society in a way that now you have a lot of direct control over. And that's really cool to hear. So amazing. That's interesting to hear. I've never had some that reflected back to me. Thank you. Well, it may or may not be true, but it, se it, seemed, it seemed like the kind of... I really like the narrative, though. <laughs> well, good. It seemed like the kind of things that would get the, the audience to listen in and perk up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, but, um, sure. but no, um, genuinely, I think I, I can see the path. Well, we're coming up on the end of our time here. Um, this has been kind of a wide-ranging conversation, actually. Thank you for that. What is the best way for listeners who want to stay in touch and on top of what you're doing to connect? Is it is it through the lens of your startup? Is it your LinkedIn profile? How should people learn more about and follow Bianca? I guess it's LinkedIn and Instagram. And if you have something to say, just slide into my DMs. I think that's what you say. <laughs> that's what the kids are saying these days. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Some younger people talk to like, you don't have to start a dating app. People just use DMs from Instagram. And I was like, mm, that was my 20 year old babysitter. I don't know whether that, that's true. I think that, yeah, but yeah, uh, LinkedIn, I'm going to talk about it uh, a lot. The project is called cherish.one. So like cherish, like cherry picking and to cherish someone. And yeah, I think those are the things to get in contact with me and follow. Well, thank you so much. As we know, innovation change is hard, but it's people who are actually taking the action, actually doing something that are going to drive that change. Thanks for being part of that. Thanks for joining the conversation today and sharing what you're doing. And I can't wait to kind of stay in touch and see what's next. Absolute pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Ian. It was a joy. Amazing. Well, have a great night. Enjoy your weekend. Get some rest with the kids. And uh, I know those precious moments of rest. And we'll talk soon. Bye. So that's a wrap for today's episode of Alchemist X Innovators Inside. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you found value and insight in today's discussion, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode. Don't forget to share with your friends, colleagues, or anyone who is passionate about corporate innovation or just curious about great ideas and practical insights. Until next time, I'm Ian Bergman. Thanks for tuning in.